Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth of and final book of the Torah. Do you remember we began in Genesis where we read about creation, the primeval history, and the calling of Abraham to set right what had gone wrong in the world? Now, since Exodus, we witnessed the deliverance of Abraham's descendants from bondage. We witnessed the giving of the law at Sinai. And we witnessed the long wilderness wanderings in the land that was promised Abraham. Here in Deuteronomy, the the prophet Moses, who's been our protagonist since Exodus, he gives us his last will and testament, is the way some people talk of this final address. It's a valedictory address that is presented as a series of speeches on how the covenant between God and Israel is to take shape in a new context. We read about how the covenant between God and Israel takes place in the wilderness, but what about in new contexts? And Deuteronomy's context, the one it's concerned about, is the land of promise. So that is the introduction. Here is our thousand-foot view. Again, this is kind of our framework to see the rest that comes. Focus more intently on this part in the next hundred foot view. Wash, let that wash over you. So Deuteronomy begins where numbers ended. Israel is gathered on the plains of Moab just outside the promised land. And unlike the generation before them, they are poised and ready to enter. But first... They assemble to listen to Moses one last time. And this one last address is the whole book of Deuteronomy. So in the opening address, Moses is oriented to the past. And he recounts Israel's journey to the border of the promised land. That's in chapters 1 through 4. In his second speech... In chapters 5 through 28, he is oriented to the future, to life in the land under the law. So he's concerned about Israel's life under the law in the promised land. And then finally, in the third address, the entire nation of Israel is led in covenant renewal. That's chapters 29 through 32. The book doesn't quite end there at the end of his third speech, the end of his address. There are a series of appendices and finally an account of Moses' death as he's looking out 
upon the land of promise. So Deuteronomy as a whole, and each speech in particular, has the same general purpose. And that purpose is to inculcate obedience to the covenant. To inculcate obedience to the covenant. So moving on to our more detailed view, and this might help kind of keep track as we flow. For Deuteronomy can be a bit confusing because there are sermons within addresses to, ser- to, yeah, to the people of Israel. So you'll have sermon, address, address, sermon, but the sermons are all within that address, and that outline is to try to help us out with that. So, in the opening address, Moses begins by recounting the 40 years in the wilderness following the covenant at Sinai. Now, in Deuteronomy, Sinai is called Horeb. So if you're reading through Deuteronomy and you say, well, what what, was this covenant at Horeb? Deuteronomy refers to Sinai as Horeb. So, in this book, he's recounting the 40-year wilderness following the covenant at Sinai, or Horeb. And he ends with a plea to this new generation to succeed where the Exodus generation failed. In his short sermon, at the end of the first address, Moses makes clear that Israel is to obey the commandments of God, to learn from the lessons of the past, and to take full possession of the land and its blessings. That's the first address. The second is not all that different. It's much longer, but it's not all that different. In the second address, he begins with a sermon as well. Only this sermon is much longer than the sermon in the first address. Moses once again appeals for new commitment to the covenant. And he begins with the Decalogue, with the Ten Commandments that we've read about before. These Ten Commandments are identified as the central or the essential charter of the covenant between the Lord and Israel. So the Ten Commandments, the central charter of the covenant. The form and content of the Decalogue that we find in chapter 5 are very similar to those of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20. So the Ten Commandments look very similar in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. So similar that the only points of difference are a reason given for the commandment to obey the Sabbath. In Exodus, we're to obey the Sabbath to remember that God rested on the seventh day. But in Deuteronomy, we're to rest for the Sabbath because God delivered us from the land of bondage. There's also a slight difference in the, co- the, the commandment not to covet. And one, it's do not covet what is your neighbor's or your neighbor's house. The other is do not covet your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's, your, your neighbor's wife. So the Ten Commandments are pretty fixed. So the, in the book of Exodus, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, come right before the collections of instructions known as the Covenant Code, if you're remembering this. Here, too, 
In Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are placed strategically as a kind of guiding preface to its own covenant code, a much longer covenant code than that found in Exodus. Thus, the reason why I keep harping on this is, and maybe this is a helpful answer to some of the questions we had in weeks prior, the primacy of the Ten Commandments in defining covenant identity seems clear from the placement of the law in both these contexts. Again, one is from one generation, the other set of laws from another. What remains constant, at least for the most part, are the Ten Commandments. So again, with only minor adjustments to them, the book of Deuteronomy stresses the continued application of the Sinai revelation for a new generation. Now, in the chapters that follow the Decalogue, chapters 6 through 12, Moses recounts historical events that he didn't mention in the opening address. Remember, in that address, he focuses primarily on the wilderness wanderings. In this one, he talks about the Exodus. He talks about the manna that's provided in the wilderness. He talks about the golden calf incident. And he talks about the new tablets of the law that are given after the first are broken. While the general purpose is the same as the historical review in the first address, again, the purpose is to inculcate obedience to the covenant, the intensity of the the appeal in this second address is far greater. The people of God must distinguish themselves from the Canaanites by keeping God's commands and separating themselves from idolatrous influences. There's an intensity to these chapters that goes beyond what we've seen before. That's why a lot of people talk about the book of Deuteronomy as if it's a sermon as a whole, a homily. This is an emotional appeal, more so than it was in Exodus. Now Moses' second sermon, which again, is what, again, is what begins his second address. His second sermon ends with a fateful choice. Blessing or curse. Israel is urged to seek the blessing of a faithful life in the promised land and to reject the curse that will fall on them for disobedience. So there's a binary choice presented. Choose the blessing. While Moses' second sermon comes to a close here, his second address is really just getting started. And a good chunk of not only the second address, but of the whole book of Deuteronomy, what some have called the book's core, is what I called the covenant code. And just like in the other books, these are a collection of legal material. This code, though, contains various statutes, and this part is kind of important, so pay attention to this. This code, uh, where it's differentiated from the other ones, is it contains various statutes that reflect 
a more settled and institutionalized community than the code in Exodus did. What we see here is that there is a new setting has legitimated change within the law. This new setting in the land, as opposed to in the wilderness, there are changes to the legal materials in the covenant code. I think that this truth reveals that while there is continuity with Sinai, and Sinai is definitely viewed as like the, the important one, there is also change. And we see that change here at the covenant made at Moab. We're going to get to this more deeply toward the end. But it seems like in the Torah itself, God's will is not what might be called a lifeless statute. It's dynamic. I don't want to make too much work with that. Again, the Ten Commandments were essentially the same. But we see in this covenant code uh, a reflection of something more, again, institutionalized and centralized, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the actual code itself, this covenant code that comes right after the Ten Commandments, it begins with instructions for worship. These include new practices to be instituted in the promised land. One important new demand is that worship of the Lord, or Adonai, will only happen in a single place. This goes against what was practiced before, even what was mandated at times before. Worship of Adonai will happen in a single place. This new law appears to undo earlier commands in attempt to centralize worship for the sake of unity and purity. The stress on centralization functions as a way of viewing and understanding this collection as a whole, the whole covenant code. Again, the emphasis in this code appears to be the unity and purity of worship in the promised land. And while it's not named in the book of Deuteronomy, Jerusalem would eventually become the place of the central shrine with the building of the temple by Solomon. So by the end of the covenant code, Moses' second address comes to an end with more blessings and more curses. Again, blesses for keeping the covenant and curses for covenant infidelity. And what some have done, and it's, it's there, is they've said the text of Deuteronomy reflects this suzerain vassal treaty of the ancient world. Now, what is that? That's, uh, the Hittites had these treaties. The Assyrians had these treaties. And these treaties were uh, a powerful person or a monarch or you name it, made this treaty with someone who was kind of under their care, and there was these blessings for doing the work, curses for not. And you, you make this pact, and you're together, and I'm not really doing it justice, because I don't really want to focus too much on that. When people talk about the book of Deuteronomy, they only focus on that, and it's not actually that essential 
for the final form. So that may have been an important part of the prehistory of Deuteronomy, but it's almost just, it's, it's interesting to note, and it helps us understand the whole, like, blessings and curses part, because especially at the end of the code, the blessings and curses are intense. And there are far more curses than there are blessings. But it helps us understand the, the treaty model this came from. While at the same time, I think we have to help to understand that in its final form, that structure has been kind of pushed to the background. That's not the most important part. I'll unpack a little bit more of that as we go. Now, in Moses' third and final address, he invites all those assembled from the beginning of the book to commit to the covenant being made with them here at Horeb. So in a sense, this covenant at Horeb is its own covenant, but it's not divorced from Sinai. It's very much connected to Sinai. Here, the keeping of the covenant is presented very forcefully. Again, that kind of homiletical or sermon style. It's presented so forcefully that this is a matter of life and death. So choose life. The people are to choose life and blessing over death and curse. Now, after Moses' third address, um, the book comes to a conclusion with a series of appendices. And in these appendices, Joshua, remember the one in numbers who said, no, let's trust the promise and take, enter the land. He is presented as Moses' successor who will lead the people into the land of Canaan. The covenant made here at Moab, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is to be read publicly at the central sanctuary every seven years. They're supposed to be getting this every seven years, and as we'll read about in the history, which is the next couple weeks, they kind of forget about that, or they don't do it. And the covenant itself, and this is pretty interesting, at least to me, the covenant made at Horeb is to be kept near the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I find that interesting because, remember, the covenant at Sinai is put in the Ark of the Covenant. But the covenant at Moab is put near it. I'm going to kind of try to unpack that in a little bit. We then come to the Song of Moses, which is in our Book of Common Prayer. I think it's in the morning prayer. It's a canticle. And it rehearses in poetry the essential claims of his address throughout Deuteronomy. It's as if this is like a true conclusion in poetic form. Now this song makes clear what is kind of left implicit throughout Deuteronomy. The song makes clear that Israel will, in fact, fail to keep the covenant in the land of promise. So that sounds pretty depressing, right? Nevertheless, the tenor of this final section is actually hopeful and it's full of confidence that God will renew Israel's relationship with God in spite 
of the people's failures. The text reads that he will circumcise their hearts and take delight in them again. And we're going to hear about that when we come to the book of Jeremiah. Not too long from now, not too far from now. Finally, Moses offers a final blessing on each of the twelve tribes of Israel before he dies as he's given a glimpse of the land of promise that his descendants will take and will inhabit. And the book concludes after Moses dies with the acknowledgement that there has never been a prophet that has arisen in Israel on the level of Moses who knew the Lord face to face. So that's how the book ends. So what about a conclusion? We've noted throughout this text that the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the nature of them is pretty fixed. Maybe not altogether immutable, because we see slight changes with the covenant, with a commandment about Sabbath keeping and with covenanting. But these remain pretty much the same, whereas the legal materials in the covenant code seem to be a little bit more contingent upon the setting. Now, Sinai, I think to help you understand the relationship between Sinai and Moab, I gave the metaphor last week of Leviticus being kind of a a maintenance manual. Well, in Deuteronomy, Sinai, or Horeb, as it's called in Deuteronomy, I don't know if this is helpful, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like the American Constitution. And the Moabite Covenant are like the amendments to the Constitution. Actually, I think that is really helpful. Again, Sinai is put in the Ark of the Covenant. Moab is outside. It's near. Moab is essentially expressing the law once given in a new context. Again, kind of like amendments to the Constitution that we have. Now there's also, again, we have to deal with the contextual nature of the covenant code. What does it mean that the law can change? What does it mean that it's not static? What does it mean that it's dynamic? What we see in this covenant code a concern for centralization. The concern is the unity and purity of the worship of God in the promised land. It's as if there's a concern, like, okay, everyone's doing their kind of own thing. We're not going to have that unity and purity. That's what we need. So, Walter Brueggemann and this guy Dennis Olson says that Deuteronomy understands itself as part of a dynamic and ongoing tradition of reinterpretation of earlier laws and materials. Thus, Deuteronomy itself implicitly authorizes a continuing interpretive practice that moves always between traditional inheritances and faithful innovations of a covenanted kind. What does that mean? 
But what these people seem to be saying is there's this dialectic. Again, Sinai, this all has to be in continuity with Sinai. And we see, again, the Ten Commandments are essentially recapitulated here in Deuteronomy. But there's also this notion that these words, particularly in the, in the Covenant Code, are not once and for all. So this is before the New Testament, right? Jesus says that I am the fulfillment of the law. But even in the Torah itself, there seems to be, based on different contexts, differences in how we are faithful to our God. Never throwing away Sinai or Horeb. Again, it's kind of like the Constitution. I don't love that because, whatever, too much America loving. But it's a similar idea. We see amendments throughout the Old Testament. Maybe you could even say the New Testament in and of itself, while it is a fulfillment of the law, it is an amendment of the laws. In his fulfillment of them, many of them are now, we don't obey. They're obsolete. This is something I want you to wrestle with. This is something I'm wrestling with. This notion that God's law, or at least parts of it, are not a matter given once and for all. But that law was integral to life before Sinai and develops after Sinai in view of the needs of new times and places. That said, it doesn't seem anywhere in the scriptures or in the history of the church that Ben DeHart, as an individual, can say, I don't like this law. I'm not following it. It seems to be within community, within the synagogue, within church. So again, there's kind of a hemming and hawing here. My inclination is to jump to, oh, let's change all of it, or, oh, let's, to the letter, everything. Go back to the laws in Exodus. Let's bring it back. So that said, some of the key concerns in Deuteronomy, and I'm really going to end with this. This one's much shorter because it's very similar to the books that we've just had. Key concerns are, again, the centralization of worship. Another key concern is Adonai, or the Lord is the only Lord. In the past, it's been, yeah, worship only Adonai. But there's been this question about, well, what about the people who serve other gods? Deuteronomy makes explicitly clear Adonai is the only God. This book is also concerned with continual covenant renewal. Again, this is to be read every seven years. We're to remember this. We're to make it our own again. So Deuteronomy is an ending, a capstone to the Torah, but it is also a beginning. It is an opening to what we're going to uncover in upcoming weeks. In fact, some say that those first four chapters 
In Deuteronomy, if I knew how to make it go back, I'd make it go back. But maybe I'll do it after. That those first four chapters are not only an introduction to the book of Deuteronomy, but also an introduction to the books that we're going to read. Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. For I think it's important to note that while the history of Deuteronomy goes way back, the events it's talking about go way back, but this book in particular, it's very much clear that there were different times it was being worked on. It's possible that parts of this book were written during the time of King Hezekiah. It's very likely that good chunks of this book were written during the time of King Josiah. This is hundreds of years after this event. And why I think that that is actually really helpful and not a scary thing is that, one, God is going to get his word to us in his own way and doesn't have to be on our terms. But two, I find really fascinating about this is that Deuteronomy in its final form, again, a lot of the stems way before, but in its final form, it is very likely that it was brought together in the time of the exile and maybe right after the exile. So what this means is that this whole presentation of Moses to the people about to enter the land, this is once again being presented to people who are about to get back into the land. Does that make sense? And you can see why this extends beyond just them to people like you and me. For throughout this book, the writer has been very intentional in not saying those people or the Israelites, but these, this call to covenant faithfulness is to you, the reader, who are hearing this as if it were said right now. Deuteronomy is a fascinating book. Some have said it is the theological center of the entire Old Testament. And as we'll see, some of the main concerns like centralization, Adonai and Adonai alone, and continuous covenant renewal will be brought up time and time again in Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel. Some have called those books Deuteronomic history because they're so connected with the book of Deuteronomy. So once again, and I'll end on this, Deuteronomy is an ending, but it is a beginning. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.